We are kicking off um, proper Exodus. Woohoo! Um, this morning, we are going to be in chapters 1 and 2. So if you'd like to turn in your Bible or your app to the book of Exodus, just as you find it, it's right at the beginning of your Bible. Um, go Genesis, Exodus, and then you found it. Just a couple of things I, I feel is important just to clarify um, on the way in. Believe that Exodus is a historical book that is accounting for us a story that took place um, with God's people. Don't believe it's a book of mythology and um, concepts and ideas of how God might work with his people. Believe that it's rooted in history. Believe it's important that as followers of Jesus, we, we want to keep contending for the authority of Scripture and for stating we believe in the Bible. And there are amazing, um, supernatural, miraculous events that take place in this book. And many people would say, well, is there a way to scientifically prove them? And, you know, you can ask that question. That's not a bad question to ask, except that what I want to say is this, that to be quite honest, splitting a sea in half kind of pales into insignificance when you hold that against a God who raises someone from the dead 2,000 years ago. And I think when we do that, you kind of go, okay, I, fine. That's the, big, that's the biggie here. Does he split seas? Easy peasy. Um, so, this, this is too tall for me now. Um, even when it's down low. Right. No, it's fine. Well, that's too low. Um, this is literally wasted time. I'm just going to get to it. Um, so, Moses is the author and that the book of um, Exodus actually sits as part of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that we call the Pentateuch. And actually, in Mark's Gospel, he refers to it as the book of Moses, Mark chapter 12. And so Moses is accounting for the formation, the creation, the formation, and the events of God in bringing a people that he has birthed through a promise to a pagan guy called Abraham and saying, through you I will bless the nations of the world and I will save the nations of the world. And, and Moses is telling the story of what that looks like. And so this is just one part of a bigger book. But it's crucial that we understand, as I said last week, the importance of this story of Exodus as part of the whole of the Bible. Not just a, an abstracted part, but as part of the whole story and structure of the Bible. If Jesus' life and death and resurrection is central, pivotal, foundational for the, um, for, the, for the Christian tradition, then the story of Exodus likewise is pivotal and foundational for, for Jewish tradition and for the Christian tradition. It shapes us, it gives us our understanding of the power and significance of the cross. Actually, even without this story, we have a, a, a story of salvation that's made smaller. This, this story elevates the significance of the cross and being led out of slavery and death into life. And Jesus, he, like many writers, all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, Jesus held this story of God's people, this Exodus account in understanding and interpreting and teaching who he was and what his mission was. So that at the end of his week in Jerusalem, as Jesus was getting ready to die, 
teaching the disciples what was about to happen, it culminated in the Passover meal. When Jesus took the story of the Passover that we're going to read about in a few weeks' time. In fact, Mr. Tiley's preaching on in a few weeks' time. And Jesus takes this story and he, he doesn't just say, oh, it's a bit about me, by the way. He gets hold of this Passover and he elevates the meaning and the significance and the power of this story within himself and within his own life and death. And so this story is really so central to the whole shape of Scripture. And therefore, you can see why we want to say this, we've got to know this story. Not just as a Sunday school, there was a guy called Moses and blah, blah, blah. But no, salvation plan of God. That God is the God who redeems and that the, the redemption of God, the salvation of God always comes through sacrifice. So I have a question for this morning. And I want to ask it at both a corporate level and a personal level. Can we, the church, I don't just mean gateway, I mean the church of Jesus Christ, past, present, future. And can you, as a follower of Christ Jesus, if you have put your faith in him, can we live with a God-honoring, biblically optimistic conviction that God is faithful to his promises? In an era when, in the West, and particularly in the UK as much as anywhere, what was once a Christian tradition in the nation, so we were, as you know, um, shaped by Christian tradition and thinking both morally and our moral compass as a nation at large was set by the Christian tradition and teaching and legally with laws that we enacted that's increasingly over the last few decades being sidelined in the marketplace and the world is saying to us and the governments and um, the influencers are saying, we don't want you. You are irrelevant we have no need of you, get out the way, to paraphrase the story of the last two decades. Can we believe God as we're being sidelined? Do followers of Jesus, does the church have a future? And just in case we run out of time, the answer is yes, by the way. Um, <laughs> in the face of increasing hostility towards Orthodox Christian faith, biblical fidelity, does the church have a future? Does your faith, can you hold on to the promises of God in life? And I want us to ask that question and just hold it as we um, read through these uh, first couple of chapters in a moment, because this is the, the question that's being faced by God's people in Egypt under slavery. God? Are you faithful to your promises? God, we've got this going on. God, I've got this going on. God, help. And so we're going to see that in just a moment. And so Genesis, the end of Genesis, ends with Abraham's family settling down into Egypt. They're doing fine there. They're actually multiplying and being fruitful. And that's significant in the story of God, But I just want to say, before we dive into this story, that the reason that we care about this family, about Abraham's family, now in Egypt, thanks to Joseph's, or God's hand upon Joseph's life, but Joseph's skill and faithfulness to God, the reason we care about what happens to this family. I mean, there's been lots of families, lots of nations in the world that have made migration stories and different, and faced all kinds of circumstances. But the reason that we want to 
focus in on this story, the reason the Bible comes and says, but what of Abraham and his descendants is simply because, remember this, the salvation of all nations hangs on what happens with these people here in this story. We should care deeply about what God is going to do with this family. And so, as we get going in Exodus, let's realize that this question of how is God going to sort these problems we're just about to read about is the question that is hanging in the air. Chapter 1. I'm just going to read through chapter 1 and um, some of chapter 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All these descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people in number, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread because of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard surface in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives to them and said, I think there's a few years gap, by the way. I think um, Pharaoh was expecting to see Israel numbers start to decline. Not so many young Israelite boys running around. But after a few years, when he realized, hey, they're still coming, he called the midwives to them and said, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. You kind of feel this mother birth story off moment. You know, you know the ones. Um, so God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And the midwives feared God, and he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, Laura. Uh, Laura? <laughs> Sorry. The banana's got to kick in. <laughs> Laura. <laughs> Sorry. Well, maybe. We're not told. 
Um, Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the riverbank. And her sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and, because he, and he became a son to her. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. We just turn to verse 23. During those many days, this is following on from verse 7 in chapter 1. During those many days in Egypt, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to God for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. Just as we get going, um, there's a book I want to highly recommend to you. Um, It's called Echoes of Exodus by Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts. It's a superb book that traces the um, story, the theme of Exodus, um, through the scriptures, through the whole Bible. And it's a fantastic book to help us see this story repeated over and over again. Uh, through the Bible, but not only that, it helps us to learn to read the Bible um, in that way, to see the the themes of God, how God is at work. Um, I would like to recommend that to you. It's a superb read. It's a good read. Um, So, Abraham's family are still in Egypt. There's a new king on the block. I have five minutes. Yikes. This guy, Pharaoh, he now no longer knows anything about Joseph, or Abraham's family, the blessing that Joseph was, that God used Joseph to preserve both Egypt and Israel. Either he's forgotten, you know, stories sometimes don't get passed on, or he's conveniently forgotten that now that the Israelites are a threat and he's in fear of them, well, they might have once been helpful to us, but these days we're fearful of them. And Pharaoh begins to enslave God's people. He begins to enact a genocide out upon God's people by destroying them. And this story, as we read it, we can so easily just sit back in our seats and go, I know these stories. I did them in Sunday school. I I know what's going to happen. I know where it's at. But we are meant to be on the edge of our seats here. Hey, God, these are your promised people. These are the people that you said to Abraham that through you and your offspring, I will bless the whole world. These are your people of promise of salvation to the nations. What on earth is going on, God? 
They're in slavery. They're now facing genocide. And God, what are you doing? How are you going to rescue your people? And that's really what the story, the book of Exodus is about. It's about how is God going to deal with this circumstance? How is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going to come and and intervene, but not only intervene, to, to show up Pharaoh as God and the gods of Egypt and say, I am God. I am God. I am God. And Israel's redemption, their, their um, salvation from simply slavery, it, it covers every aspect of life, political, economical, social, and spiritual. Yes, they're brought out under, from under slavery, but, but God's plan for them, as we said last week, is to draw people out from slavery, to draw them into Him. Self. And so as we look at this story, we've got to have this big picture in view of what God is about and what he's doing. So I'm going to jump through just to get to a couple of key points quickly. Exodus 1.7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceeding, exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. As we read that, I hope in us was one of those whoop, whoop, heard it before moments. Hey, we've heard that before. A few chapters back, God in Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Hey, not that much later. Look at this. We're here. They are being fruitful. They are multiplying. God's hand of blessing is upon them. They're faithful. God's people, Israel, even under slavery, are being faithful to that calling. They are reproducing. They are multiplying God's image out into the world. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because it was their calling to make the glory of God known in the nations. It was the the glory of God that was to be made known. Psalm 72 says it like this. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And God, God is hungry that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. And you know the agent that he's chosen for that to happen through? His church. His people. Men and women, male and female, you and I. He uses many men and women made in the image of God to say, your job in life is to reflect my glory. God wants his glory to be known. But like any great epic, there's another contender that wants his glory to be known. And that guy in this story is called Pharaoh. He sets himself up against God and he's, these guys are a threat to my glory. These guys, their God is blessing them and they're a threat to my glory and the glory of Egypt. And so we see this conflict at play between God and the gods of of Egypt, between the gods of the nation, between the gods of the world, anybody who would set themselves up in opposition to God. There's a word, there's a Hebrew word at play in this text that we miss in our translations and it's this word avad. And avad, it's a Hebrew word, can mean to work, to serve, or to worship. And as we go through the first few chapters of Exodus, we, we hear it, although we don't realize this is what we hear because of our translation, 
in verse, chapter 1, verse 12, we read it. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and evade them ruthlessly. They worked them ruthlessly. So for Egypt, Israel, they're just a resource to achieve what we want, our glory, our praise. But then in chapter 4 and chapter 7, we see this word again. And God says, then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Let my people go so that they may evade me in the wilderness. God says, say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. And just, just remember that God doesn't just lead us out of slavery to set us free into nothingness. He sets us free from slavery to sin and for Egypt's slavery under Pharaoh to draw them into himself and into his promises. We're set free to evade God. In fact, we're set free from evading. I'm not quite sure if that's technically right, but you get the drift. We're set free from evading all kinds of things in life, whether we evade for ourselves and our own prestige, whether we evade for our boss to climb the corporate ladder, whether we evade for money in the bank so that we feel secure. God has set us free from those ways of thinking, that we can evade him as his people and make his glory known. And so I hope you see the mission is at work here in this story. It's the same mission at work. Pharaoh wants glory. God wants glory. Even more importantly than Israel being faithful to following God, in the start of this, we see that God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his covenant with Abraham. Listen to this, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, from your people, from your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses, I will curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I wonder as Egypt was sat, sorry, as Israel was sat enslaved in Egypt, crying out to God, facing bitter work and punishment and an oppression, I reckon that they lent into those verses. I think they reminded each other of those promises to Abraham. Hey, God, remember. Remember neighbor, remember friend, remember brother, sister, mother, father. God will bless us. He said it. He said it. He promised it to our forefathers. He'll make us into a great nation and he'll multiply our offspring. God has said it. And I wonder if it became like a, a, a drumbeat that they said to each other over and over. Even under slavery, that they said, God has promised. Let's believe God in the midst of suffering. Let's believe in the midst of all the suffering that our God is a God of blessing. So I'm just going to jump to for literally a couple of moments, how should we respond? How do we respond? It's, in one sense, that story can feel quite removed from us. Well, I'm not under slavery to Egypt, no, but we have been under slavery. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you are under slavery. Not just in an abstract way, you are under slavery to sin. It, has, it is your 
master. And this story reaches right down into our story. So I've just got a couple of points. Harsh and bitter circumstances. Whether, whether it's things we can do nothing about, whether it's circumstances that we can help but we've made a mess of it, or whether we just are feeling broken in life. Hear me as I say this. Christian, be faithful in what you can do. Be faithful to God. Be faithful in every circumstance of life. Christian, be faithful to God. Verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The more that Israel was oppressed, the more that they were blessed by the hand of God. I... I don't know about you, but something when I think like that makes my heart go, God, thank you. Thank you that you get hold of the rubbish, excuse my French, crappy moments of life where it feels like I am under oppression from, I feel like I'm under bondage, under oppression from Pharaoh, from the world, from my neighbor, from circumstance, from my bank account, from my boss, my, my marriage, my family. It just feels like it's falling apart and I'm stuck in life. Hear this, the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they were blessed. We, as the church, and I don't mean gateway, I mean the church, we can take courage from this. That as we, the church, are faithful to Scripture, faithful to God, to the promises of God, faithful to encourage one another in life and faith, as we gather and strengthen one another and say, keep believing him, keep doing all you can to be faithful, as we do that in the midst of a fallen world where men and women hate God and say, you don't need to be faithful. Hey, if you just adjust this area of your life or this area of doctrine and theology, then we'll be more accommodating for you. There's always that temptation and then we won't persecute you and you can have a bit more of the pie if you want, a bit more influence in society. There's always that temptation to think, well, maybe if we just fudge it a little bit, then we won't face the challenges we're facing. And that may be true to a degree. But if you do that, you won't have the hand of God's blessing upon you. The two go hand in hand. Faithfulness to God under any circumstance, results in the blessing of God for you. I think that's true for the church. As we make a stand and say, God, we want to be faithful to you, faithful to Scripture in our generation, even though the world may come against us and sideline us and persecute us and say you're irrelevant and who knows what's to come in the years ahead. As we stand faithful to God, the promise of Scripture in this passage is, I will bless you. I will multiply your church. I think that's something that is encouraging for us. And if you're finding yourself right now standing in a hard part of your story, I want you to hear this just from this opening salvo of Exodus, that God's story with you is not yet finished. That whatever you're facing, whatever life is throwing at you, whatever mess you've made of it, God is not finished. He still has a story that he's writing for you. Israel making bricks without straw for 400 years. Oppressed, persecuted, crying out to God as we read at the end of 
Chapter 2, crying out to God. God, where are you? God, deliver us. God, rescue us. God, get rid of Pharaoh. Release us. Save us. 400 years is a long time to cry out and to believe the promises of God. But hear me in this. The encouragement from this passage is that we are to keep trusting God always. Always. And I say this with all love and sincerity to you. If this morning, like maybe every morning for many, many years, you have found yourself in types of slavery and bondage, keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. Of that, that you say, I want to ask you the question, can you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you believe that he is faithful? That he does deliver? That he is not yet done with you? God doesn't just draw us out of slavery and say, now get on with it. He draws us out to draw us in. And if you like, our story now is we have been drawn out from slavery under sin. And we now are in this wilderness period, but we're not left there. God says, I'm taking you. I'm drawing you to myself, and I've got a promised land for you guys. I want to encourage you to cling to him, hold on to him and his promises for your life. It was never promised to Israel that their journey to the promised land would be an easy journey. God never promised them that. He never said, look, guys, it's simple. Every step is going to be like the parting of the waters. He said, no, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight, but in your fighting, I want you to stand and watch me fight for you. And I think, as I was reading this, I was just reflecting, I think that Moses shared these stories like this and wrote them down, not just to give us information, but to draw us in, to to draw us into this story that even for us, now, today, that as we stand and look at our stories and maybe cry out to God, God, where are you? God, where are you? Moses said, he's faithful. He's faithful. Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. I love how Pharaoh is nameless in this story. Oh, he's just the king of Egypt. Footnote in history. But you get the midwives who are named in this story. I just think that's, I just think that's stunning. I love it. I just think God, he, he celebrates faithfulness. He honors faithfulness. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to help from God. Their cry of, their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God. Listen to this. God heard their groaning. God remembered their covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. They were crying for 400 years, and when Moses is telling us that, they didn't know it was going to be 400 years. They were just crying out to God. They had no idea of when are we going to be delivered. But we do what we do as God's people, we cry out. They didn't know when it was going to end. They didn't kind of go 150 in. They, did, they didn't know where they were located in the story, but nevertheless, they cried out. God hadn't unveiled his plan of deliverance and salvation for them at that point. But we read these four stunning verbs. God heard, God saw, God remembered, and God knew. 
Church, wherever you face yourself, whatever's going on, wherever we are facing as God's people here, in this room, here in the nation, whatever kings and queens are setting themselves up and their kingdoms and, and whatever many gods are, are, are vying and against the purposes of God in our generation, let me tell you this. Early on in the scriptures, we are told that when God's people cries out, he hears, he sees, he remembers, and he knows. I think that is just stunning, the way that Moses has dropped that in here. So I think that's a call to us to cry out to God for our nation. God, remember our nation. God, remember them. God, save them, rescue them. God, the gods of our age are, are keeping people enslaved in sin. Got to look after myself. Got to make something of my life. Got to experience this, that, the other. And the gods of our age are holding people in slavery. Hey, as we, as ministers of reconciliation, kings and priests in the, in the kingdom of God, as we cry out to God, he will see and hear and remember and know. And he's a God who's faithful to save. And finally, the God who knew is the God we're going to discover in this story who becomes known. And I wonder for many of us, sometimes we, we, we see ourselves and our relationship with God of kind of just a me and God thing. And we think it's just little old me. I want to tell you that the men and women that God uses in this story, in fact, just the women at the start of this story is amazing. We see the faithfulness of Moses' mum. Listen to this, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw a child that was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Faithfulness. Well done, Moses' mum. You're not afraid of the gods of the age, but you fear the Lord. What a, what a stunning story. Miriam, I'm assuming that young girl was Miriam, Moses' older sister, the courage to walk up to Pharaoh's daughter. Hey, I've got a plan that can help you here. And the, the, the common grace of God upon Pharaoh's daughter to, she didn't know she was bringing into her home one who would save and deliver God's people. But the courage of Miriam to say, I, I, know, I know who can help. And then the kindness of God in that, that gave Moses back to his mum. The midwives and their faithfulness, they didn't, they didn't kind of go, look, there's a book being written about us. We, we could get in on this if we do something clever here. They were just acting in the ordinary of life, saying, no, we want to honor God. We want to honor God's promise. And God honored the midwives. And God even takes a baby. And he puts this baby through the purposes of his parents into a basket, and the, the Hebrew word is tabot, and it's used one other point in this part of the Old Testament of the ark. And he put this baby in an ark, and he kept him safe, and he delivered him from the waters, and he ultimately delivered him and his people from Pharaoh. And the reason, church, that we can be so confident in God's promises is because he did the same again. He took this story of the Exodus and he said, I don't want to free you from slavery to Egypt. I want to free you from slavery to sin. And he took another baby. And this time he put the baby into a manger and he said, everybody who is in 
him will be saved and delivered. Everybody who is in him will not just pass through the waters of the Red Sea out from Egypt, but will pass through the waters of death and judgment. Everybody who is in that baby, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, will find life and freedom and will find that a vad of him and of my of God, Father, Son, and Spirit is what you're made for and is true freedom, is true deliverance from oppression, is truly God setting us free from slavery to sin. Just wonder if you want to, where you are just right now, let's just close our eyes. Father, we thank you that you are the God of salvation, the God of freedom, the God of faithfulness to your promises. We thank you that our story is inextricably linked into what's taking place in your people in this era. That you are the God of the Exodus. That you're the God who reveals yourself to us. And I thank you that you're the God who invites us into you, into your Son. That we find life and freedom and hope and a future in him. And that our discovery is that even in the midst of bitter life's circumstances, he is faithful and he blesses. And some of you are saying, I've, I've been in this bitter circumstance maybe all my life. You know what Moses would say to you, what the scriptures are saying to you today? Is keep trusting, keep believing. There's a greater exodus happening. There's a greater exodus occurring. That God would lead you into his promises for you, for a future and a hope. So church, I bless you this morning and I pray that, Lord, even as we remind ourselves of this story, that our hearts would be to evade you and not ourselves. That our, our desires would be to glorify you, to make you known in our generation, not fearful of the world and the little gods of this world, but to fear you, like, like the Hebrew midwives, to fear the Lord and to honor you to believe you, that you are the promise-keeping God. So Lord, we bless your name this morning. I do pray for each and every person here who would say, I feel like I'm in a bondage right now. I feel like I'm entrapped. I pray, Father, for deliverance in their story, that they, their story would be, God set me free. Whatever it might be, whatever that is, I pray that there will be many stories in these days of God. Be exalted, O oh God. Amen.